Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world. <laughs> that was a nice question. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Just, you know what? Forget all the other stuff. Welcome. Okay. Welcome. Your turn. You talk. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, everybody, to FNO InsureTech. We're happy that you're here. Normally, Rob, it's about how, how stupendous and wonderful and exciting Today was just welcome. Why? Well, I'll tell you. There's a there's a really good reason why. What is that? As soon as it comes to my mind, I'm going to let you know. Is it because I'm I'm recording this intro at five thirty on a Friday afternoon? No, that's so incredibly generous of you. It really is. No, it's because our guest today defies all description and definition. I like that, and I would agree with. They that. made one of these guys one, and then yeah. they took the mold. They crushed it, mm -hmm. they burned it, melted it back down, and sold it as gold bricks. That's <laughs> that's, that's huge. Right. That's, that's like your biggest intro big. yet. That's big. <laughs> that's that's big. Yeah, that's big. We have a we have a really cool person on today. We have a person who has made a big impact in your life. Yep. And has made a big impact in mine, even though yep. he might not know it, but he yep. did. He set my InsureTech career on a path forward by listening and talking to me at a very early stage in my InsureTech career. We have a big guest on. We have a big guest. We had a guy that he was one of the first people that I knew who was embracing all this stuff and trying to make it all work practically in the insurance world that exists today. Right. He was trying to say, you know what? We need to marry all these new ideas and these new processes and technologies to what exists. How do we do that? What belongs? What doesn't belong? What's going to make it? What isn't going to make it? What does my organization need? We have that guy on. We do. Why don't you tell everybody who that guy is? I'm not ready to say his name. I forget it. Well, I mean, what do we just want to keep shouting praises among praises? And and it is important to know the guys moved on to an, a a new venture. We're gonna to get to talk all about this new venture. He's in a he's in a whole new venture. It's cloaked in secrecy, the whole thing. So a young man, giant in this field of of insurance uh, transformation, almost innovation. like Bob Vila is to the world of tools. This guy is to the world of insure tech. Well, that was very clever because, you know, I'll tell you something about this guy. Mm -hmm. He, like, could build his own house. <laughs> yeah. Repair his own car. He yeah. could live on an island with his family, but he could live on an island as the only people on the island, and everything would be beautiful it. and custom. He's. Yeah incredibly talented in every way. He's the kind of person I love to hate because he's gifted in every way, right? And an all-around super nice guy. Wonderful man. Wonderful man. 
one of my favorites. We have with us today the former lead leader of innovation at Amica, now out on his own, has decided that he wants to take his show, the Adam Kostecki Show, on the road and share his knowledge, know-how, insights, and abilities with the whole insure tech space, carriers, insure techs, venture world, all can take advantage of the remarkable vast amount of knowledge that he possesses. I'm ready. Let's jump in. Let's okay. go. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, without further ado, the one and only Adam Kostecki, the principal at InsureTech Innovations, his new company. Everybody, thanks for joining us today. Let me provide a, an appropriate introduction here because the usual introduction just isn't going to do today. We have the man most likely to be named the next Bob Villa. Villa? Bob, Villa? Bob Villa, I think. Bob Villa, yeah. Bob Villa. If they had a national contest and they had to pick one, we have him on the show today. Adam Kostecki. Welcome, Adam. Welcome. The Adam Kostecki, who's formerly known as Adam Kostecki of Amica. Right. Formerly. And now known as Adam Kostecki of InsureTech Innovations. LLC. There you oh, go. Okay. Well, we'll just, we're just going to call it Inc. There. So that we can call I want to call it Triple I. <laughs> Well, you good. Taken, Rob. Good try, but I think that one's taken. That one might be gone already. But no, yeah, I've uh, just recently started my own InsureTech Focus Consulting Advisory Service. Wow, uh, how great! Yeah, trying to leverage the twenty some odd years experience I had on the carrier side, working with vendors and technology providers, especially startups. You know, helping them with achieve breakthrough success in the insurance industry. Wow, that was really good. That was you good. I practiced that all night. <laughs> you were more than that. All right. Yeah. Perfect. We're done here today. Thanks for being our guest. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's great. <laughs> so for those of you who don't have the video feed that we do, we're looking at Adam. None of them do. In this pool house. It is. Yeah. It, it looks well, like a cabin. It looks like a cabin. It's You might call it a pool house. Maybe some people might call it a shed. But okay. yeah, this was- um, That's not a shed. It was at one time. Yeah, okay, but nice for shed. anybody out there who's thinking, oh, shed, don't think shed. Stop. It's but a no, shed. You know, um, back at the beginning of COVID, we were doing some work on the house, and uh, this was the time we really shifted to work from home. And uh, unfortunately, I had demolished my home office, and uh, I made it through about one or two days trying to work from my living room with two young kids running around the house and said, I got to figure out a, a different solution. Oh yeah. So um, I, I took a little bit of time off during the summer and uh, really fully remodeled this pool house here, put all the pool equipment outside, put up all the wood paneling you see here and uh, did a nice wood beadboard ceiling, built a couple lofts for the kids. Don't tell my insurance company that, but uh <laughs> No, it's a great, quiet place to work from home. I really enjoy it out here. Uh, as that long as the place. lofts are unoccupied. Exactly. There's storage uh -huh. lofts. That's, uh -huh. what we, that's, that's what we would say on the underwriting application. That's right. It's wonderful to have you back. This is your second go round, right? You've been with us twice. This is yeah. number two. Maybe about three years ago, the last time uh, we connected on the podcast. Our, our producer just let me know that it was 6 28 19. 
three and a half years. Wow. A lot has could, changed since then. We're old, man. We've been doing this for a long time. I know. You know, are. Rob, I, I was looking at the graphic of your image and I said, you know, on this podcast cover, I think they might have to retouch your image. Adam and I had a pre-call for this episode and we did it on video. And the first thing out of his mouth, he takes one look at me and says, geez, you're old. <laughs> I don't think I said that. I said, you know, Rob, you look good in the salt and pepper. No, that's not, no, that's hey, not. If no. the shoe fits, you went straight to old. Because <laughs> old people remember when they're called old by people who aren't old. Or actually, old people don't remember much. I want to say experience. Rob, you look so much more experienced than the last time I talked to you. So wise. It's it's true that I am more experienced, uh, just in no way that's functional so uh, (laughs) or practical. Let's talk about where we are today. So Adam Kostecki, the principal, is that your title? Principal? Sure. Yeah. Principal consultant. Okay. Principal consultant at... InsureTech Innovations. And, and I want to talk all about InsureTech Innovations, all about that and, and even on some special topics of interest. But first, I want to talk about your resume. Give us a minute on where you started in this journey with InsureTech and insurance and how you got to today. You know, I probably took a non-traditional path here. I mean, I, I think the story starts before my days at um, Amica, my carrier days. You know, I I think I told you before, as you can see, I really enjoy working around the house, working with my hands, building stuff. Prior to working at Amica, I was an auto mechanic. I I love cars. I love working on cars. I do my own maintenance on cars, you know, and just the love of cars and homes ended up as kind of a interesting set of experience to roll into insurance, personal lines, obviously, uh, insurance. And, you know, working as a mechanic, I worked at a small independent shop with a couple bays, doing everything from oil changes to engine swaps back in the 90s, the early 90s. And uh, I was kind of convinced. I I went to college, got a business management degree from Stonehill, but I was kind of convinced I was just going to take over that shop and, uh, you know, continue being an auto mechanic. One day I was on campus and I had some time, a couple classes got canceled. I went to the career resources department and they were like, do you have a resume? I said, no, do I, you know, should I have one? And they said, well, you're spending a lot of money on college. You might want to think about it. <laughs> might be a and good I, idea. Yeah. I said, you know, geez. And, and so I'm sitting with my career counselor and, um, you know, she started talking, you know, what do you like to do? And I said, you know, in the summer times I'm in construction, I paint houses and in the winter time, or, you know, when I'm at school, I work on cars and she's trying to formulate this into a resume that's applicable to, you know, accountants and, you know, sales and other things. And, you know, as she's thinking, it was like a light bulb went off in her head. And she said, you know, there's a company that's going to be doing some on-campus interviewing, Amica. And I said, wow, Amica, I've never heard of them before. Uh, and, uh, she said, yeah, they're an insurance company and, and you'll be driving around looking at damaged cars and damaged houses, uh, all day. And I said, boy, that could be an interesting use of my experience. And, uh, really that's how it all got started. Um, I started at Amica as a front lines adjuster handling both auto bodily injury claims and, uh, homeowner property claims. Uh, I didn't drive around looking at damaged cars. I would occasionally track down damaged cars as part of investigations, but I wasn't on the appraiser side. But, you know, I really started as an adjuster, front lines, dealing with customers, dealing with claims, 
you know, and I, I later specialized in large loss homeowner uh, property claims. Uh, I was one of the first few um, specialists at Amica. Most uh, adjusters back in that day were both auto and home adjusters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I became one of the, the first few specialists in property. I moved out to Southern California for a few years as a supervisor. You know, growing up here in the Northeast, this was where all my family was from. And this was at a time in my life when a lot of my friends were getting married. So it seemed like every other week I was taking a cross-country trip back home for a wedding or other family event. So when the opportunity came came up to move back to home office as more of a, um, a, a supervisor at that point, uh, but really on the technology side and overseeing some projects, I, I jumped at the opportunity. And there I worked in the property loss division. Uh, I oversaw some deployments, one of our first, um, the first computerized estimating programs. Remember the days of Marshall Swift Beck? Absolutely. I, I, I do. Were you guys in the MSB shop? We were early on, yeah. It was funny. During that role, uh, my boss gave me the nickname Com Stecky. Remember Com Central? Yeah. I earned the nickname Com Stecky, uh, and that took me quite a few years to to burn that nickname off. But uh, you know, being involved in the deployment of that and teaching adjusters how to estimate was a really great use of my skills in understanding construction, working with customers and contractors, and working with software. You know, to kind of figure all that out. So it was really an interesting role for me, and that turned into. Uh, property claims examiner, where I oversaw a territory of large and complex claims, I think across 11 different states. So, you know, where, you know, being a front lines adjuster, maybe one out of 100 claims that you have is interesting or crazy or very complicated. In that role as an examiner, like 100 out of 100 claims is messy. Oh, so yeah. uh, some really great experiences there, a lot um, of experience with litigation and, you know, just large property claims. I just want to jump in here because that's a job that probably suited you perfectly because you're the kind of guy who probably who likes to look at a big, hairy, audacious, complicated task and figure out where do I start? What are the steps? What's the finished product look like? And that probably suited you very well. You know, I enjoyed it. It was interesting when I first started we were still in the world of paper files. So you'd come to work, you'd have a big pile of files on your desk. At the end of the day, you hope that pile was shorter than when you started. But yeah, looking through files, looking at estimates, identifying opportunities to uh, be more accurate in the ways that our adjusters are handling files certainly uh, was a good use of those uh, skills. I, I enjoyed it for a bit, but I think the people side of it was really different. You know, yeah. while certainly I worked with uh, branch managers and some adjusters, you were more um, managing files than managing people. Right. And uh, at the same time, I was also uh, taking a leading role in some key technology initiatives, you know, one of which at that time was uh, deploying a, a web-based uh, mapping system. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, leveraging technology to predict where claims might happen after an event. And through that, I think working on technology projects really helped um, energize me. And, uh, you know, with that prior knowledge and property claims and leveraging technology to improve uh, processes, that's where really we started the claims-focused innovation team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and how long ago was that? That, that was, that, I think we launched that team in 2013, 2014. Okay. Uh, wow, that's, there. that's pretty early. You know, we were focused on things like drones and mobile apps, you know, leveraging technology to make our adjusters more efficient out in the field. 
Um, and one of the things we looked at there, uh, smart home technology was a really interesting area. I think I talked about that the last time. Was that back in 2013? You were talking about the drones and smart technology and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I installed one of my first uh, leak detection devices in about 2013 uh, okay. in the house here. So yeah, I, I would say that's really when we first became aware of it. Uh, we, we continue to do some deep research. And then it wasn't until about 2018 when we really were going to embrace that trend. We built an enterprise innovation team around smart home technology as kind of our first primary project. Yeah. Uh, that team eventually scaled up. We built out a core innovation team and an adjacent innovation team, took more of a portfolio approach uh, to innovation. What's that mean? What's that mean, portfolio it just means, approach? Um, you can't really start an innovation team with one project. You know, The whole idea about innovation is you're working on a number of different things, and most of them should fail. They should be so ambitious that you should be starting projects that will fail. So if you just have one project... It's you're more of like an implementation team as opposed to an innovation team. Did you bring in a professional innovation person to put this thing together or did you kind of build it from the ground up and, so, and say, OK, well, I'm I'm Adam Kostecki. I'm going to get a man. I'm going to buy a manual and read it and then we'll go from there. It was a mixture. We had certainly we had some good talent within Amica that um, was the foundation for our team. We did involve outside help consultants uh, really to help us understand how to structure for innovation and what were some key roles to build out on the innovation team. And then later on, we certainly uh, went out there and hired specific talent for some of those key roles because it just didn't exist inside the organization. So what does it take to be on that team? I mean, whenever you were looking to add to that team, what kind of what kind of skill sets does somebody need to be on a team like that? I mean, I, it varies based on the, the roles and the roles can be quite different, you know, from an innovation manager to an innovation analyst to a strategic designer. Um, very different. But I would say one key um, competency that's important across all those roles is dealing with ambiguity. Um, you know, yeah. um, working in an innovation team, it's not, it's the career path is not a straight line. It's not like the rest of the career lattice in the organization where you go from one role to the other. And ultimately, in some of the roles in innovation, you really need deep experience. Like when it comes to things like customer research, you really need deep experience. People that are willing and experts in research that are willing to really go deep there instead of taking someone in that role and promoting them to manager or you know supervisor, that's not really the career path. They want to go deeper in research and be craftsmen in their trade of doing research. So uh, hiring for that skill and creating a career path for that skill is de definitely different than the rest of the organization. Mm -hmm. But you ran it. Yes, I did. I did. You didn't come from an innovation team elsewhere. You kind of had a couple of innovation things in your innovation tool belt. I see I'm trying to put these in terms that you'll appreciate. Tool belt. See how I'm playing to the playing to my guest here, Lee. That was really good, Rob. Thank you. Thank Podcast one on one. But you ran it. So I mean, how did you get there? Um, I think as with any good innovation, you learn by doing, right? You have a good idea from a strategy perspective of where you want to go. Um but then you just you get the right people that are equally motivated, um, you know, the right skill set. I had a great management team uh, that helped with some of the day to day. You know, one of the things about me is uh, I'll give you a whole bunch of great ideas. 
but sometimes when it comes to execution, um, you know, that's where uh, sometimes you need a little bit more support and you need a varied um, set of people to help. You know, you can't have all of the same people, especially in innovation. You really need a diverse set of skills that are working together collectively um, and skills that can be complementary. You know, one of the things I always thought from a leadership perspective, often the approach to leadership is to think about people's weaknesses and to try and build upon their weaknesses so they're, you know, equal with everybody else. And really my focus was to understand people's strengths and to make them stronger in those specific areas. You weren't looking for them to be broad. You were looking for them to be deep. Exactly. Exactly. Uh -huh. And then wanted them to go deeper and, uh -huh. and wanted to help them go deeper as opposed to broadening out in some cases. Because, you know, one of the things uh, someone said to me early on in my career was, uh, you know, Adam, sometimes you're a square peg trying to go into a round hole. You need to round off those edges. And uh, I always thought to myself, but what if those edges are what makes me good at what I do? Yeah. You could write a whole book on that. That's a whole interesting topic right there that maybe we can do that in a, in another episode. But but I, but I want to stay here on on innovation teams. We see across the industry now many carriers with innovation teams. Most carriers. Most carriers. Yeah. Um, and whether it's a, for lack of better terms, a lip service innovation team or a, a, an innovation team that's really empowered to lead change, because that's what it does ultimately, right? Yeah. You know, I think what you're referring to is the innovation theater, right? And, and in some cases... Um, you know, teams are more uh, interested in the activities as opposed to the impact. But, um, you know, I think innovation really is all about the impact. It's not just about coming up with the idea, but um, driving that change all the way through deployments and implementations and to monitoring after the fact to measuring the level of impact you're achieving. That's what true innovation is. So you build this innovation team and you through it you gain tremendous exposure not only to the process and the principles but also to products and what products are pertinent and what matters to the to the to the carrier talk about some of the things you learned in what you did yeah i mean we certainly spent a lot of time um, scouting outside of amica and looking at new capabilities startups with new products, new service offerings. Uh, and often we were in a position to try and integrate those new offerings into our existing uh, products. So whether it's a smartphone app that can measure how you drive, um, you know, we, we did a lot of testing on the innovation team of uh, the different usage-based insurance or UBI apps out there, uh, learned a lot about that technology, um, or whether it's a piece of hardware like a leak detection device uh, or a device that can detect and, and stop a leak from happening. Um, learned a lot about what it means to um, have a piece of hardware involved in the insurance process. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of these, um, a lot of things that we tried out and that we tested failed. And I think they failed at, by virtue of this idea that if you're not out there and you're not ambitious enough and you're not trying out a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't work, then maybe you're not learning as much as you should. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if innovation teams have a very high 
um, success rate, one of the things you might think about is maybe the projects are, are too incremental. They're too close to the core. Um, and, you know, I think one of the key metrics to measure innovation progress is um, those failures. And what did you learn from the failures? I like that a lot. Talk about IoT for a second. I know that was a hot topic for you in the past several years. Why? You know, I think our initial fascination with IoT, uh, especially with my background in claims, uh, was was really around how to leverage these devices to prevent losses uh, from happening. And there are a lot of great solutions out there. But the more that we tested, the more we understood that IoT, when it comes to loss mitigation, it's not all about the sensor. The sensor plays a big role, but it goes well beyond the hardware. It goes into behaviors of the people in the homes, and it goes into education. I think loss mitigation goes from a single device into more of a programmatic approach in the future, where um, things like helping people understand their home maintenance requirements yeah. are really important. Um, and being preventative, you know, some of the testing with those devices, what we found is just getting people to go into areas in their homes uh, that they don't often visit, whether it's beside the washing machine to look at what, you know, the hoses going into the washing machine or to look at the hot water heater or even just under sinks and bathrooms or kitchens. That awareness turned some people on to issues that they could stop before the claims happened. Yeah. Wouldn't you say the hardest part about IoT in in the insurance space is people? I mean, it's not necessarily the device. It's doing what it's supposed to. It's the people not willing to to plug it in or not willing to set it where it needs to go. What did you learn about that? Yeah, I think people is a big it's a big part of it. I think uh, some companies have done a great job getting over that through the programmatic approach and making sure that people install devices and follow up as part of the deployment plan. I mean, if you're just firing off free devices and hoping people install them, yeah. I think ultimately you see some pretty low install rates. You would have but, to. You would have to. Yeah. If it's part of a, a program or a process and there are uh, touch points in the middle where you're following up with customers, I think you can drive pretty good success on installation. I would say when it comes to IoT and devices, I would say the biggest issue is probably variability, mm. right? The, the homes are so different out there from a construction perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, wireless networks, you know, I mean, granted, things have gotten pretty easy um, to install on Wi-Fi these days. But just different Wi-Fi connections, um, status, different phones. Passwords. Um, Passwords, yeah. uh, user IDs, you know, yeah, that's like the that. hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. You know, especially once you have a bunch of these on your, on your phone, trying to, trying to remember your ID and password for 15 mm -hmm. different apps. Forget uh, it. it. It can Forget be a challenge. It. Yeah. That's, that's a tough part. Moving forward to InsureTech Innovations. Can you share with us what you're going to be doing? I mean, you must have very specific areas of expertise that you've been able to really gain and polish through all of your exposure here um, and not just not just on the on the technical side on the device or the pro program or the program side but also on the implementation side the you know the the go to market if you will side is is that right talk about what what you're thinking how do you take what you have and move it into what where you're going 
Yeah, I mean, as I was saying before, you know, working with a lot of vendors, um, we, we learned a lot about what doesn't work. And, you know, we learned a lot about um, throughout those trials about those, uh, you know, those failures. And in many cases, it just involved a, a different tweak or a different pitch, right? Being clear about what the value proposition is and what problem um, a solution is potentially solving and helping insurers quantify that uh, opportunity so that priorities can be brought to that. You know, that just goes to kind of the high level um, strategy, the pitch and the go to market strategy for some of these offerings. Um, you know, I think just helping startups understand how to pitch and again, you know, how to, how to present um, and who to present to. That's yeah. another, um, you know, key area that I can help uh, these, these newer companies with. I'm sure um, that's a big mistake that a lot of companies make. Oh yeah. The startups, they're always trying to go right to like the chief claims officer or the CEO, <laughs> you know, like those, those, that's not the right target uh, for most of these. You, you got to find the people that are experiencing directly the problems that you solve and they'll help you find the right people. They'll make the right connections. So kind of create a champion yeah. to help you. Right, right. You've got to find someone that's feeling the pain and says, wow, this really is a solution that could help. Um, and certainly, you know, innovation teams are good places to start because they have all those connections. They can make those introductions. Uh, those folks from the business can help vet ideas and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, you know, throughout that, certainly just high level go to market strategy. Um, you know, our team did a lot of customer research through that. We learned you know, things like prototyping and validating ideas before you get too, too deep. Yeah. Uh, some, some startups I think could benefit from understanding how to do that and ways to do that in, inexpensively and pretty quickly. Certainly just overall product development, starting with, you know, a key opportunity to address quantifying that opportunity and then making sure that from a product perspective, you're actually solving that problem in an effective way. Yeah. Um, you know, and then just in, in specific areas of expertise, the types of platforms or um, technologies that or, or companies I work with, uh, you know, I mentioned my experience in claims, property side especially, um, you know, I've got some deep experience in property estimatics and, you know, deploying direct repair programs or contractor networks. Oh, so I've yeah. got a few uh, prospective clients in that area. Uh, yeah, I mentioned uh, my work in the geospatial and mapping uh, technology. Um, you know, there's a lot. It's really interesting to see what's happening with the aerial imagery, the new imagery coming off of the um, some of these SAR satellites, synthetic aperture radar that can see through darkness and through clouds and measure millimeter level change detection. Really okay. interesting applications on a geospatial perspective. Yeah, it's very. They help me understand. I just want to make sure I'm right. So InsureTech Innovations comes in to the marketplace and you help get these companies together. You help implement. Who is your customer? Is it the startup and you help them uh, go out to market and implement? Or is it the carrier and you help them implement a, a solution? Who is your customer? Primarily, I'm starting more on the vendor side, but definitely okay. I think uh, carriers of different sizes. I mean, some of the early and younger carriers, I think, could benefit from some of the experience I've gained, yeah. whether it be, you know, in claims directly or, or building out innovation teams. I absolutely think that a carrier could contract with InsureTech Innovations and as, as an advisor of how to build a team, right? To work with the team 
because I mean, my God, you've tripped and fallen. Sure. Right? What, one of the things that I always used to say, I, I still believe it very strongly, and that is we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So much of our time is wasted in life, in life reinventing a wheel that already exists. We just have to find who invented it and and go to them and get that wisdom. Yeah. I mean, I I could certainly help accelerate for carriers looking to build out innovation teams that don't have a lot of experience in this area, especially as it relates to the AM best scoring criteria and understanding that, how to achieve good results there. Certainly have some great experiences there that could be helpful. What are some of the pitfalls that some of these startups have? What are some of the things that you see just out of the gate that companies could use that would help them? I mean, one of the things I, I often hear from startups is they, they want more introductions or they need help from a sales perspective. Really, when you, once you start getting into it, what you find is uh, the reason they're not getting calls back is because their pitches don't make sense or they don't have a product that's really ready to sell. Right. And, you know, that's the worst thing you want to do in that case is get more introductions to people, because as with many things in life, sometimes you only get one chance. Mm-hmm, and if right, you don't right. have a refined pitch and you don't have a product or a turnkey product that uh, you can immediately uh, set up a pilot and start testing, the last thing you need is more introductions at that point. So I think making sure you have an offering that's ready for market before you really dump the gasoline on it through leads and introductions, I think is a key thing. You know, secondarily, I mean, I think making sure you're solving a valuable enough problem. There are a lot of these niche solutions out there, you know, either from a customer experience side or from an IoT device side that solve an interesting problem, but that problem just isn't frequent enough. Or big enough. Yeah. Narrowness is an issue. What excites you when you think about the impact that you can make working with an organization? You know, on the startup side, what excites me about working more with startups is the speed at which they can move and the speed at which they can pivot. You know, sometimes when a startup just doesn't quite have that right pitch or the product maybe just needs a little bit of a tweak, it can make all the difference in the world. And sometimes it's just a minor tweak. It doesn't require a significant development effort or a a complete retooling. It just needs a little bit of sharpening. So I think on the startup side, I'm excited about making progress a lot quicker. And, you know, I think on the carrier side, I think I'm excited about helping them understand some key future trends that they can prepare for in the future from a, not necessarily from like a project implementation perspective, but from like a high level trend perspective, you know, I've got some training um, in, in identifying patterns and trends from a futurist perspective and uh, some of the things happening. This is a really exciting time. I mean, isn't that a lot of what innovation is about? And I don't care whether you're making innovation or creating innovation or whatever it is that you're doing with it is reading the tea leaves of the future. I would say that's maybe a misconception about innovation is that it's all about reading the tea leaves. I think that's an important component of innovation, but there's so much value in understanding the business today and understanding technology and understanding the key drivers and levers that need to be adjusted, that there's this tremendous amount of value that can be brought to organizations through incremental innovation. Um, but, you know, I, I think really where the future scanning is important, it's when you're trying to come, come up with the breakthroughs or address the adjacent markets and the adjacent opportunities. 
pattern matching and trying to predict out where things are going with electric vehicles or where things are going with the metaverse, or in some cases, you know, maybe a little closer to us connected home. I think that's where it becomes more important. But on the incremental innovation side, I would say like just understanding the business is probably more important than, you know, the futurist type training. I like that. I mean, are there trends that people are not looking at that they should be looking at? Are there carriers out there who think that they've got it going, but there's this whole new world that they're not even thinking about? Take, you know, electric cars, for example, or take, I, I don't know, that's a great one. Like, is there something out there that people should be looking at? I can't speak to, you know, the carriers out there, but, you know, I can speak to just what what needs to happen to support this move to electric vehicles. Okay. And I can also speak to, you know, what might be happening today that maybe people aren't noticing as much because these EVs represent such a small share of the current book of, of insurance. When it comes to electric vehicles, one of the things the industry is starting to see is the cost to repair these vehicles after an accident uh, in many cases, is significantly more than the cost to repair an internal combustion or an ICE vehicle. And I think that's something, you know, everyone's aware of right now. But the question becomes, well, there's a couple questions, you know, why is that the case? And maybe more importantly, what do we do about it moving forward? Right. Let's talk about EVs. That's really cool. I live in California. I'm sorry. They just passed legislation. I don't quote me on the year, but by 2035, the only new cars that are going to be sold here are electric by by law. Now, we'll see what happens in 2035. Yep. There's, It's not a magic wand that's going to make it happen or a law that's going to make it happen. But nonetheless, let's just assume for a second. If nothing else, it's a validation of a, of a trend. And I mean, I know people who, uh, regardless of their political stance or their, their climate stance or anything, they would have an electric car for cost, for sound, for safety. Just to be able to use the HOV lane in California, right? Just to be able to. No, the HOV2 lane, which is where you have to have three people or more, not just two. Look at that. So there you go. They're here to stay. It's, it's, It's a super big deal. You know, you you mentioned like a a law isn't necessarily going to change things, you know, in and of itself, I would agree with that. But I think public policy plays a significant role in driving this trend in the future. And, you know, when you look at other countries that have been successful with deploying EVs, you know, countries like Norway, the incentives that they provide, not just on the cost of the vehicle when you first buy it, but on things like your ongoing excise tax. Or I think they even they, they have some sort of law out there that says any road toll or ferry toll for an electric vehicle is 50 percent the cost of a gas toll. Oh, right? wow. So, you know, those incentives go a lot deeper. They do. I think they also go into, you know, com- countries like Norway have uh, much more clean energy already. So right. it's you know, hydroelectric uh, wind right. power. It's already clean energy that's powering these electric vehicle fleets. Whereas other countries maybe aren't starting from that same position, but I think government incentives play a huge role in adopting. And you know, California is one example of states that have announced legislation to try and go electric by 2035. Yeah, uh, I think uh, you know across the, the whole country they're trying to make that same mandate of 2035. And there have been at least a handful of others that have made similar commitments. But the ramifications 
on the insurance industry have got to be very significant. Yeah. I mean, you might just think about like, you know, if you try and think about the cost to repair an electric vehicle as an increment over the cost to repair an internal combustion engine, that's where I think there's not as strong a correlation. I think you're dealing with a totally different risk, you know, and that's one of the questions the industry has has to wrestle with right right at this point is how do electric vehicles actually change the nature of the risk? Right. You yeah, know, I don't even know if they're more I don't even know how much it is to fix an electric over a gas. There are some statistics. There's some been some early research by companies like CCC. I think they've published some of this research. Depending on the category of the class of vehicles, I think one that stood out just on the top of my head was small SUVs. You know, the pure battery powered S- small SUVs cost somewhere like fit. I don't know. Again, this is off the top of my head. Maybe fifty percent higher after a collision to repair a small SUV as it does to repair an, uh, the ICE counterpart. Is that scale, though? Is some of that scale? A symptom of this or a part of the problem here is that, you know, the supply and demand economics going into pricing. There's not enough mechanics that can fix EVs. You know, the bodywork on many of them is aluminum, which requires specialty skills to weld and repair. You know, they, they sometimes come with these exotic paint colors that are four or five stage uh, colors in order to repaint. So I think like you're dealing with a, a much smaller number of shops that are qualified to fix these vehicles. And then just when you get into the supply chain around parts, yeah. an interesting thing about EVs is there really isn't much of an aftermarket right now. Right. You know, one of the ways carriers control costs on ICE vehicles after a collision is through the use of non-OEM parts. Mm-hmm. That's not really much of an option when it comes to EVs. So then the EV manufacturers have a, you know important role in this. Yeah. I mean, I think in the future, you know, once we really get through some of these uh, issues, I mean, I think the OEM manufacturers for electric vehicles um, are positioned very well to uh, consider uh, their own branded insurance. Yeah. A la Tesla. Yeah. I think you look at what Tesla is doing, and I think it's a great uh, example and market of what can be done. We've had several companies on talk about telematics, talk about driving data, talk about accumulating driving data, talk about using driving data for UBI, using driving data for uh, mitigation, all all different kinds of things. Talk about that next step. You know, I think where we are right now is we're in the the messy middle where things haven't been ironed out. And and by the way, this trend isn't going to happen overnight. Right. You know, this move to electric vehicles is going to take time, probably in the five to 10 year time frame when these impacts really become pronounced. You know, you can really start seeing some of these impacts. But right now we're in the messy middle. We're just starting to see some of these issues. And, you know, again, like there are so many complexities. I'm not as a, you know, a CEO of an auto insurance company. I mean, I, I think I should be aware and concerned about autonomous. But I think when it comes to EVs, there's so much more complexity than just autonomous driving. And, you know, I mean, the performance of these cars, you know, $160,000 Tesla can outperform a $3 million supercar. And what does that mean to the the risk, right? And how do you charge the right premium for that? You know, when it comes to weight, these vehicles, the the Hummer H2 almost weighs 10,000 pounds. Hmm. You know, what is that going to mean when that hits another vehicle from a property damage perspective? These electric vehicles, they're silent. 
So, you know, the people not paying attention, walking around with their heads buried in their cell phones, they don't even hear these things coming and they step right in front of them. The other thing, like the complexity of hardware, when it comes to these EVs, in many cases, the hardware is the same, but they're flashed with different variations of software that either provide different capabilities. You know, the example of the Tesla autonomous driving capability, that's a software update that you pay a monthly fee for, but it's the same hardware. So how do you tell which vehicles have that on them or not? and which months the feature is turned on or off. In general, an electric vehicle produces a lot more data about the risk than an an ICE vehicle. That's where some of these OEMs may be able to capitalize on this in the future. It's a pretty interesting spot we're in right now where companies like Tesla know more about how people drive their cars than the insurance companies that insure them. Adam, we are so honored to have you, but we are up against the clock. And so let's do part two here. Let's do part two with you. You're you're a very unusual person in our industry, right? And I think that you, you're, you have tremendous value because of the time you've spent on the carrier side, because of the jobs that you've done, and your remarkable insight into the products that are out there. And so I'm just so excited to share all that with our audience. And I know that our audience is super excited to hear about it. Absolutely. And so will you come back for a second episode? Absolutely. We got to finish this conversation here, you know? So listen, thank you for today. How does somebody get in touch with you? Reach out to me via email, adam at insuretechinnovations.com. That's easy enough. And it's an insuretech without the E, I-N-S-U-R-T-E-C-H. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's important. <laughs> that's important. Look me up on LinkedIn. Okay, look him up on LinkedIn. K-O-S-T-E-C-K-I. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate was- this, Lee. It was great to see you again. I look forward to the next one. That's right. I like that. I'm in. I'm in. All right. Thank you. One of my favorite people in the insurance industry. Yes, he is a great... He is one of the first people in the insurtech space you had me meet whenever really? I came really? to work at 470 back uh-huh. then. And what did you... Th- That's right. That's right. You said, you have to spend time with Adam. And you gave me his number and you said, call him. And I said, I'm not just going to call him, Rob. And you said, you listen to me, you call him. And I talked to Adam in my office for an hour, just about the space. And it really set the tone for my whole insurtech career. He was a he was a great guy. He was a great guy. He's an innovation pioneer. I mean, mm-hmm. the innovation space is young in its formal and current state, and Adam is a pioneer. He's a pioneer. And it's pretty funny when you're, you know, whatever age he is, young man and a pioneer, but he is and he's going to do amazing things and the biggest problem that Adam is going to have is he's not going to have enough time cuz he's going to be so crazy in demand. He's already in demand. I mean, people are, they know, and they're like, you're, you're doing what? Yeah. Let's, let's work together. In fact, I'll tell you what, the conference I was just at, I was just a property information report. People were talking about him. Really? Yeah. I, in a couple different conversations, I told them I have an innovation guy much, much cheaper than Adam. Cause I was trying to sell you. Cause I figured, you know, if I could could sell you to do some innovation work, I could make a little on the side. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Adam's got a great future. Very excited. Uh, Happy that he came on. Can't wait to talk to him again. 100%.
big thank you, large grande thank you to Adam Kostecki, to each of you for listening, to my co-host and co-founder of this podcast, Lee Boyd, and to our intrepid producers, I say thank you. And until next time, we'll say goodbye, everybody.